Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I'm running through the current version of my Sunday sermon. People are trying to figure out what salvation looks like. Now, that's a very interesting word. It certainly has resonance in many Christian churches. There are loads of implicit and explicit definitions for it. For many people, salvation looks like free, looks like being free from material want, having enough food on the table, having enough money in the bank, being able to send your kids to the colleges they want to go to, driving the car you want, etc., etc., etc. Earning or winning a billion dollars would seem to do it. One might think that would save someone. Um, people seem to think salvation looks something like fame because part of what being famous is about is not only having sort of uh, access to lots of money perhaps, but um, also lots of favors and other people who want to get to know you. It's sort of leveling up in the world beyond just money, but also fame. And Prince Harry just wrote a book uh, feeling a little uh, number two-ish, um, not likely to never inherit the English throne, and so now he writes his own little tell-all book. Perhaps all of this builds up to the idea of maybe perhaps having all of human history be about you. Um, the ultimate narcissistic dream that, that the entire, not only the entire world that I'm living in, but all of human history might be about me. Now, last week at Living Stones, we missed the sermon because we had that big storm and power poles fell and you couldn't get to church, so we canceled church. I um, sent out the, the rough draft that I had posted on my YouTube channel, and so some of you might have seen that. I'm going to take some of the passages from last week's sermon and put it into this week's sermon. And actually, they don't do too badly because John the Baptist sort of becomes bookends for really what the central message of Matthew chapter 3 and chapter 4 are about. Matthew sets the table for the story of Jesus with framing Jesus' work in the light of the revelation of John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is, who he was, this is who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem, all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This is very much an apocalyptic scene. It's a revelation. We have all of the accoutrements of Old Testament prophethood sort of brought into what in the first century Judea under the Roman under Roman rule was, well, God seems to have stepped out of that old book and into their real lives. And in last week's sermon, I had a number of interesting readings from a book, uh, The History of the Jews, by Paul Johnson about some of the tensions that go on through the creation of canon. God's kingdom, the kingdom theme comes through with John. God's king is returning to his people and John's garments are the reenactment of Elijah. You very much have the wilderness motif. Wilderness is the dry, chaotic sea symbolically. Israel was born out of slavery into wilderness where God himself led them. 
And confession is, of course, an interruption of mindless sinning, waking up to the present dangers and opportunities. Did I go two or one? There we go. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Apocalyptic indeed. Now the Pharisees and Sadducees, you don't find them in the Old Testament. They're not characters in the old stories. They're both born out of the titanic intertestamental struggles between the larger powerful Greek imperial culture and the resistant Hebraic culture. Pharisees and Sadducees were rivals in terms of how the Jews should relate in the broader sense to the world around them. This, the main tension is sort of assimilation versus resist. And exactly what does assimilation look like and what does resistance look like? Because in some ways, they both had, which is usually true, they both had aspects of assimilation and aspects of resistance. And this, this story is actually very old, and it goes back into the Old Testament, of course. When you had the division of the tribes, as, we, as you can see in the Old Testament, the, the northern tribes really struggled mightily with the question of assimilation or resistance. And when you have King Ahab and Elijah the prophet, that's a classic example of assimilation versus resistance. Ahab marries Jezebel a princess from Tyre, and she brings Tyrian Baal over and his temple into Samaria, and that's part of what's going on there. The southern kingdom also had their struggles with this, as we saw a few weeks ago with King Ahaz bringing the altar um, from Assyria into God's temple in Jerusalem. Now, John is not aligning with either the Pharisees or the Sadducees. John is declaring that his apocalyptic absolutism cannot be co-opted either by the oral tradition culture war waged by, waged by the Pharisees, nor the Greek accommodationist biblicism of the Sadducees. There's a universalizing motif within John's message here, too, though, that this is, in fact, a deeply apocalyptic message to what goes beyond Israel, and in fact, Israel scattered throughout the nation. Israelite particularism via the line of Abraham cannot be used as a guarantee to assure um, release from the coming wrath. Events are underway that will completely remap the map of history, and John is there to announce its inauguration. People need to wake up, pay attention, and prepare themselves for the opportunity and the calamity that is coming. I baptize with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now this is full of Exodus motifs, and they're not going to end. Egypt was a place of water. Egypt tried to drown the sons of Israel in water. Moses was rescued by an ark in the Nile and brought to the palace of Egypt. Israel's God is about to appear again. That's why this is apocalyptic. John is not as important as the one who is to come. He will baptize 
with water and baptism again is sort of a water ordeal you put someone under the water and see if they live see if they survive see if they can stand against the judgment of god and be vindicated by god this is you can find these motifs in the old testament the fiery furnace the lion's den this new one will come not just baptizing with water but with the holy spirit and you can read that you can read those themes in Joel and Isaiah and other prophets. He will baptize with fire. And this again connects us back to Exodus, the book of Exodus. I am a consuming fire. You have Sinai, you have the burning bush, you have the symbolism of sacrifice and the sacrificial animals being placed into the fire. You have the harvest of Israel. More prophetic themes. Weep from chaff. Faithful Israel versus unfaithful Israel. Chaff will be consumed by God's apocalyptic fire. John says, it is about to begin. This is archetypal. The Kansas State House has this mural, which in many ways sort of shows the archetypal John Brown versus John the Baptist, which was a harbinger of the American Civil War. A lot of that being... Um, not the Civil War per se as much, but the early battles being fought in Kansas. Um, the Lawrence, Kansas, um, a lot of history in there. And this, this video captures it with a tornado with John Brown bigger than life with a Bible in one hand and a gun in the other hand and the blue and the gray on either side of him with dead soldiers. And then something happens that surprises John. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. Jesus replied, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Jesus comes from this mismatched region of the north, this place which is all mixed up, um, even though he is, of course, David's son. John expects a next level fire and brimstone to come through Jesus. John is ready to submit, but his form of submission is surprising. And John finds, well, should I really be baptized? Shouldn't I really be baptized by you? As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With, whom, with him I am well pleased. John expects Jesus to be the fire and the water, or at least to bring it upon a nation. Jesus, however, submits to the ordeal. He is submerged in the water. And Matthew, of course, will bring out the quote, Out of, Jesus, out of Egypt I have called my son. The Holy Spirit comes upon him as a dove, not fire on the mountain. The dove was a hopeful sign of Noah's, um, uh, to Noah of earth's renewal. Heaven spoke, God's son. The prince has arrived. Follow him. God is well pleased with him. You follow because you don't know what you need, where to go, or what to do. Now, Immediately following this, Jesus goes into the wilderness. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Jesus goes through water, like the Red Sea, and now out into the wilderness to be tested by God. 
Jesus was then Jesus was then led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. I said by God, and in a sense, but by the wilderness. This is clearly a testing. Israel was tested in the wilderness and, well, failed many, many tests. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Why do you fast? Now, again, you've got 40 days and 40 nights remembering the exile. This is the, or the, the desert wanderings. This is the recapitulation in the wilderness. Um, these were preparations. He's, in a sense, making wait for his bout with the enemy. Now, you have, you have these various images of deliverance. Sometimes they're called atonement theories, but they're images of deliverance. Jesus, our warrior. Jesus, our exemplar. Jesus, our sacrifice. These images are woven throughout Scripture. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. God does not have need of sustenance. Why would his Son? Shouldn't the Prince of God not suffer this humiliation of dependence? Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Remember the first thing that we want? Freedom from material want. Jesus says, I will be subject to material want. I am hungry and tempted by food. The word of God brought creation into being. Humanity must be reliant on what is rely um, on that which is reliant on nothing, really on who. I should probably change that. Humanity must be reliant on who is reliant on nothing. It is the relationship of dependence on trust on he who is most reliable that gives life, as opposed to the devil's rebellion. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This is a public display of divine connection, something many, many wish to display so that they can become famous, popular, followed, and privileged. It is the root of all religious power. For most of human history, this is how one establishes themselves as a prophet, a holy man, an expert, someone who can speak with authority. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. God is the master, we are the servant. God is the potter, we are the clay. You don't wield God, God wields you. The previous posture of trust on God's generosity is expressed in faith. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Attempting to bribe God with what he already owns? A shortcut of cheap adoration in exchange for the costly cruciform path is offered. Why go through the problem of three years of earthly ministry and then suffering and dying at the hands of the Romans, Jesus? Just bow to me and I'll put the Romans in your lap. Can a liar really be so bold as to invite the Son of God to worship this rebel? Apparently so. 
Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Three times Jesus responds to the devil with scripture. This time the devil quotes it himself. He is defeated, and Jesus is strengthened by God's servant. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophets Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus picks up where John leaves off. John the Baptist sort of bookends these two chapters. Jesus is like, but different from John. John is the prophetic figure that calls Israel to repentance and preparation for the major acts of God through Jesus. Jesus picks up where John leaves off, but his ministry will be one of bearing judgment, not bringing it. Now, apocalypse is actually happening every day on planet Earth. The day of the Lord comes in large and small packages again and again into the world. John's cry, who warned you to flee from the coming judgment or from God's wrath? can still, and still should, be heard. We see judgment around us mixed in with the patience and the mercy. He undergoes the baptismal ordeal for us, and we follow. He, uh, he goes into... Typo. He goes into the desert to battle the devil for us, and we follow. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. But how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus when baptized into his death? We, therefore, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we may no longer be slaves to sin.